Alright ladies and gentlemen, a big, big congratulations to LeBron James, NBA full-time leading scorer and still bossing it. But they still lost the game and they had to stop the game <laughs> halfway through the third quarter. In the words, Public Enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week. In the circumstances, I genuinely thought he would wait and uh, until they play Milwaukee because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who he replaced in the all-time leading scorer list, uh, played for Milwaukee and was the Lakers. Funny enough, so it would have been you know very storyline. Um, but yeah, I just found it a bit weird. I was just like, okay, so he did it, and then, uh, and then just boom, stop everything. <laughs> I was just like, oh right, okay, so we're just stopping the whole king game. Like I was like, what the fuck? Literally, they were they were in the game. It's like th- mid third quarter or in the end of third quarter or something, and they just stopped everything for it. I'm like, I get it, but. There's still a game that has to be played, and uh, funny enough, they lost against uh, Oklahoma City. Um, and yeah, so that's that done. And uh, you know, big ups to LeBron, man. Big, big ups, big ups. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just a. Uh, it's, it's this argument about like goat debate is just so tiresome to be honest, right? Because if it, people that are saying like now that LeBron's done that he's the GOAT I feel like they're being disingenuous because he was going to do that anyway so and, and once it was like on the horizon like a few years ago right once he passed like you know the likes of Kobe and that it was just like oh right so he's he, once he passed Jordan basically I think I'll say that once he passed Jordan it was just like yeah okay he's gonna he, he'll most likely <laughs> excuse me, make it to, make it past Kareem, right? And uh, people saying like, oh, now he's the GOAT. It's just like, well, we knew this was going to happen. So did you need it to happen in order for it to, in order for you to say it? Like getting the championships different from just, you know, straight up scoring. You know what I mean? He's always going to get buckets. So why did your mind change last night? You know what I mean? It's just, it's just a little bit silly. Um, So I don't, think people's minds should change off of last night um in terms of the goat debate and uh yeah it's just uh, i just found i found that whole side of this conversation a bit silly and honestly i don't even participate in it because you guys don't even consider kareem the goat and i just find that a little bit comical um considering the dude was literally dominating from not just high school but also college to the point where they had to change rules in college okay no dunking for like I think like twenty or so years because of Kareem because Kareem was so dominant they were like you can't dunk that's why he made the skyhook that's why he, that's why he invented, invented the skyhook right and then six championships got the MVPs so I don't I, what what else do you need what what more do you need is it is it impact is it um what uh, what else is it so there's some intangible that people give Jordan over Kareem and then give LeBron over Kareem 
and it just uh, doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I feel like Kareem did his best in a climate that was just not for him. Like, <laughs> like he, he was in the civil rights era, bullying and shit, bro. Like, you know, rich the rich people these days, right? They they can they can shut that noise out. They can shut that noise out quickly. Okay, um, don't get it twisted. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. But um, yeah, I just, I just find the go bait a bit jarring and a bit silly and a bit dead these days. Um, if you haven't, if you haven't made your mind up by now, it's kind of like well, you're either just going to basketball or you you be you're being you're being a contrarian for the sake of it. Um, but anyway, wanted to get that out of the way because um, I'm not putting it in the week wear because uh, it literally happened last night and I've already locked in my inner week wear and uh, gonna stick it at that. Um, but yeah, just wanted to talk about that. Let's get into it. Let's get into the show. So we have a politics, uh, two politics, uh, books, and police. <laughs> four ways before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all of that in the full show notes, as well as the music played in the show, and also the 5EPN podcast, all the podcasts under the 5EPN. Uh, in such a source just dropped today as I record. And also the 200th episode of Digging in the Digits dropped on Tuesday. Please go give that a spin. Um, good, uh, good, nice, uh, nice, healthy conversation. Nice, he- the the most healthiest dialogue about about the boat. I don't call him by his name because, as an English person, it just doesn't sound right coming out. Um, yacht, you know what I mean. So and say having the e at the end is just jarring. jarring. Um, so yeah, we have the healthiest possible conversation, the most healthiest dialogue about him, about the uh, about the comment he made about uh, being wanting to be taken seriously as an artist. Um, we have a very healthy dialogue about it and reach a very easy conclusion, um, which uh, which we find right at the hour mark. Because uh, why why would we not? <laughs> we 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 filibustered until we found the hour mark and actually. It, it, I'm being honest. It came to me pretty organically at that point, but it's just ironic that it happened like near the nearer to the end of the show. Um, but anyway, all of those in the full show notes. And uh, with that said, let the beat drop, and let's get into the show. This is going to be a fun episode, got an eye water in, got a bit of the sniffles, here we go, let's get it. <laughs> so, in a week where a Chinese spy balloon drifts into the US, and Netflix changes password sharing rules, and then get bullied straight into a U-turn, Liz Truss pipes up again via hilarious essay, and also is asked about firing Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, I think it was via The Spectator, and she still, after all this time, still didn't have a clear answer. And uh, that's just absolutely outstanding. Uh, Turkey and Syria suffer several earthquakes. Um, I think the... uh, I I forgot the number, but at the moment... I didn't want to put a number down because it's still ongoing. uh, But obviously that's uh, very big news. And lastly, uh, former Met Police Officer David Carrick is sentenced to more than 30 years in prison. So since we're talking about... David Carrick and police and the Met. Let's start with the police. So I said last week, I think it was last week or two episodes ago, um, at least one or two episodes ago, um, talking about the police. And I kind of came off that thinking that 
okay, we we understand there's you know police are shit, right? And especially in the Met, they're just um, yeah, it's garbage, right? Garbage, garbage, garbage. And uh, finally, the Met are actually you know being honest and saying, yeah, this person shouldn't have been hired. Most of our people shouldn't have been should not be hired. Um, and um, I think one of them said, uh, well, I think like chief or something, chief commissioner, or whatever, uh, said that there's going to be like more scandals or more David Carrick-like things uh, being put out there uh, in the next, like, you know, in the in the foreseeable future. And uh, good, good, because this shit should be out in the open, and this should this shit should be completely hundred percent transparent. Um, but I left that I left that particular episode recording. I left that recording thinking I don't really have solutions and I feel like bitching about the police is one thing but I feel like there needs to be a solution to this you know um, saying defund the police while I get it and while I understand what that means um, people get that as a you know as a as an offensive slogan and think you know we're anarchist whoever whoever supports it is like an anarchist and it's like yeah no police at all no police um, you know street justice you know what I mean stuff like that it's not it's not that's not what we mean, and obviously that's why slogans don't work in some ways. Or you have to, or it has to be very basic and very repetitive and very replayable. You know, build back better. Shit, man, make America great again, right? Don't know what the fuck it means, but people fucking love it, right? Defund the police. Most people don't love it because it sounds, it sounds, uh, you know, derogatory towards a institution, and because this is a majority white country, and also the U.S. <laughs> you know, you see where they're going to go with that. But anyway, I did find a solution-based piece, um, and I wanted to give it a spin. So this is via the conversation uh, by senior lecturer in police studies at the University of Portsmouth, Mr. John Fox, and it's called "The Met Police Force Is Too Big to Govern." Here's how it should be broken up. So he's the, so he's basically making the argument to break up the Met, um, similar to how Facebook and Meta should be broken up, um, and uh, stop fucking with IG, um, because, you know, I do, I, at one point I did like IG, and now I don't like IG anymore, and that's because of Meta. Anyway, not that I like the police, but that's not comparable. Anyway, let's read. <laughs> in the two weeks since an officer in London's Metropolitan Police admitted to being a serial rapist, politicians and com- commentators have called for the Met to undergo root and branch reform. Beyond the abhorrent case of now former police constable David Carrick, Met Commissioner Mark Rowley has revealed that London currently has a damaged and ineffective police service. Rowley said that every week for the foreseeable future, many of his officers will be appearing in court in trials uh, uh, involving, quote, violence against women and girls, unquote, as defendants, not case officers. Since the 1970s, the Met has had a series of so-called reforming commissioners. One was Rowley's predecessor, Cressida Dick, the first woman to be appointed to the top job. She had what many felt was a fairly disastrous tenure, which ended after the heavy-handed policing of the Sarah Everard vigil and the Charing Cross misogyny scandal. The mayor of London, City Khan, publicly said he had lost faith in Dick's ability to change the toxic force culture where sexism, homophobia and misogyny seemed to be prevalent. Excuse me. Being the chief of the biggest police force in the country is undoubtedly a very tough job. I think, in fact, it is an impossible one. London and its 8 million inhabitants deserve to be policed effectively and by a respected service. But calm thought is needed about how that can be achieved. 
As a criminologist, researcher of police culture and oversight, and former police officer, I care about the way our police forces are perceived by the public. I concluded, I have concluded that the Met is just too big and the toxic culture is too deeply set into its foundations. I believe we are now entitled of us why it should not be disbanded. Rather than tinker with the branches, perhaps the root needs to be dug up, thoughtfully divided and transplanted. I love this. I love it so far. It's good. Very, very, very logical, very common sense in my mind, right? Um, because it reminds me of, um, it reminds me of the uh, Steve McQueen uh, uh, small acts uh, short, uh, well not short, but you know, film uh, feature. Um, I think it was called Red, White and Blue or something like that. The one with John Berg and he's a police, um, I forgot boss man's name now. Um, it's based on a real guy. Um, oh, I forget his name, but you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Look it up. Um, and um, it was funny because I remember I think he got deployed to you know a an area he's aware of right his area and that makes sense right because you know you want people that are within the community but then they also have white police that have you know no relation to you know black people in 80s Peckham right for example right um so if 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 you're gonna if 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 we're going down the road that I'm assuming uh, Mr Fox is going down then you break up and have, let's just say, you know, borough police, right? A police, is, you know, police for every borough. And, you know, you source it locally, right? And I feel like that would probably be a much more understandable way of doing things. And I get, and I think that's why I can guess that's why, it, you know, policing, you know, quote unquote, you know, for the, for the sake of argument works better, quote unquote, in somewhere like where I'm living, right? They're not getting... Um, they're not getting police officers. I'm hoping this ain't the case. I'm, they're not getting police officers uh, from you know Bristol. You know what I mean? They're sourcing it. They're, 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 the the jobs are sourced locally. So if London Met jobs are sourced locally, um, and I mean locally, like borough locally, then that would make for a much more healthier dialogue, at least at minimum, a healthier dialogue between the police and the public. Um, that's my thought anyway. So let's uh, continue on. The Metropolitan Police was created in 1829, and was the first uh, professional police force in the UK. As London grew, the area police by the Met expanded, as did the workforce. Uh, workforce. The Met currently employs nearly 47,000 people, of whom 35,000 are police officers. Policing in the rest of England and Wales developed in a rather haphazard way until the 1964 Police Act, uh, through which Parliament ratified the 42 other forces which exist today. These forces were each designed to cover an English county, with exceptions for large areas such as West Midlands and Greater Manchester. These two forces have around 6,500 officers, while the country for- county forces average around 2,500. The Met is unique in both size and governance structure. Rather than having an elected and dedicated police and crime commissioner, like every other force, the Met is jointly governed by the Home Secretary and the Mayor of London, who offered dosi eye to eye. The Met also has unique national policing roles, leading on counter-terrorism and protecting the royal family and senior politicians. The potential argument that it is more sensible for the whole of London to have one police force doesn't stand scrutiny. In the middle of London, there is a separate police force, the City of London Police. They police, uh, they police just one square mile around St Paul's and the Tower of London, but are fiercely independent of the Met influence, are considered effective and efficient with good performance ratings for keeping people safe and reducing crime. A reorganisation strategy could include a single force uh, south of the Thames and an east-west split in the north, 
or a more sophisticated arrangement where the existing forces around, uh, surrounding London, Hertfordshire, Surrey, Thames Valley, Kent and Essex absorb their neighbouring outer London boroughs. For example, Kent police could take in the boroughs of Bexley, Greenwich, Lewisham and Bromley. The City of London uh, police area could be expanded beyond its current anachronistic square mile to take the remaining East London boroughs. This would leave one constab- constabulary, constab- constabulary. I, I don't know why I trip over that word. I've, I've, a constabulary. Okay. Covering roughly the area within North and Circular roads uh, surrounding inner London, containing about 3.8 million people. These smaller forces would have a fresh command team, and the former Met boroughs would absorb the culture and ethical standards from outside of London. Each could then create its own identity, ethical standards, and history, where fresh ideas are allowed to flourish. Counterterrorism responsibility could be transferred to the National Crime Agency, which uh, is, is where many people think it belongs anyway. In the face of so much damage being done to, the public, confidence, to public confidence, the current Met force structure should not be considered sacrosanct or immune to full-scale reform. The reputation of every force in the country is being tainted by the mismanagement and bad behaviour of one huge policing organisation. In 1997, it would have been unthinkable to most people in Northern Ireland that the famous Royal Ulster Constabulary GC would ever be completely disbanded and replaced by a new police service with a different name, uniform, symbols and culture. But police reform was a key part of the peace process, leading to the modern police service of Northern Ireland. It's my experience talking to police officers outside London that they feel the Met has a prevailing culture of a kind of arrogance. Their criticism is that Met officers feel that they are policing UK PRC, and that the county forces are amateurs who should watch and learn. This is anecdotal, of course, and perhaps a fair unfair generalisation. Uh, but the reality is that, as illustrated by the Stephen Lawrence, Rachel Nichol, and Victoria Climby, Climby uh, murders, uh, the Met seems to be no better at policing than any other police force in England and Wales. The Met also seems to be quite an inward-looking organisation. Upon the creation of regional police and detective training centres in the 1940s, every force in England and Wales except the Met began sending their officers to these shared centres where they would mix in a classroom for weeks with colleagues from other forces. Police officers were exposed to the high ethical standards and practices which were prevalent and commonly accepted elsewhere. The Met, meanwhile, did all their initial uh, police training and specialist detective training in-house. Their officers were rarely exposed to what was happening in policing elsewhere, including what sort of behaviour might be unacceptable in other forces. Perhaps this history of insulating their staff from the rest of the police uh, family in England and Wales contributed to the current problem. The Met's traditions, rituals, canteen culture and ethical standards are deeply ingrained. Decades of evidence show that it will take more than a new commissioner to change it. Okay, so so his um, idea was more um, was less I uh, say um, uh, less broken up than what I was thinking about in terms of like you know borough police. His was more um, more broader. I think um, splitting into like three or four um, chunks, uh, which I guess makes sense. Or obviously, as he said, giving the outer counties more uh, more of London. So I guess Essex would. For example, because I live in Essex, would maybe absorb like you know Barking, Dagenham, uh, you know stuff. Uh, places just you know just a little bit more East London. You know what I mean? A bit of East London, just a little bit of East London. Um, or give that to the City of London, which he which he mentioned. And you know that's obviously very close to each other, right? So you know, City of London's you know around Tower Hill area, Fenchurch Street. 
and uh, you know Barking's about twenty minutes train ride down. So you know, take give or take on space. But um, I think that's I think splitting up is a great idea. I think that's a great solution. And also, you know, forcing the Met to mingle with the other police forces in terms of training and stuff like that, and ha- not having in house, not having everything so in house. I think that's highly important. Um, I don't know what the you know, uh, what the vibe is when it comes to Essex police where I live. Um, but, you know, all of this shit, all of this um, garbage is coming, most of it's coming from the Met. And some people just don't see Met, they just see police and they just assume all police are trash. And they're yeah, right, all police are trash. Um, but that's me, that's just me talking, that's me and my bias. Um, but, you know, it can, it, it, there's, 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 clearly a culture there that's just that's just so like you like mr fox said deeply ingrained and that's just that's just not what we're here for um so yeah man break break up the big break up big met break up big met in the in the in in the similar vein to big tech let's get into politics and uh, we'll do we're doing the back to back um so for the first one is is dedicated to a word i've been i've been using for a while now and uh i i I love this i love this it's a phrase actually i love this phrase because it says a lot it says a whole fucking lot about uh what politicians especially um how they're just so impervious to you know, just getting completely reamed, right? Rightly so. Um, by that I mean they do shit that we can't do. Like if we did what they did, we'd be in jail for like 30, 50 years. And and that's that's a that's the truth, right? Maybe not 30, 50 years, but be in jail. Like if we did what Boris Johnson did, we'd get major fines. And obviously that doesn't correlate because he's obviously much more richer than the average person. But I remember that um, during COVID, I think uh, some youths had a, some youths in a university, excuse me, had a house party, had a flat party and, you know, they got fined. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson was doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. And it took, it took six months for him to actually get any th- sort of reprimand. And, you know, that gives him opportunity to just talk himself into being right. Um, he's like, oh, I did nothing wrong, nothing wrong. And he says, he still says it to this day that he did nothing wrong. Like, he doesn't even accept it. That's the worst thing about it. So the phrase is failing up. All politicians fail up. What do I mean by fail up? I mean that they fuck up. They do shit at their job, whether it's being an MP, whether it's being a member of the cabinet, whether it's being Prime Minister, whatever they have, they fail up. They fuck up, they lose a position, or they go out of poli- or they successfully get out of politics after, let's say, you know, 30 years in the game, and then they go ahead, make a memoir, um, get ghostwritten a memoir for themselves, and then they proceed to make millions of pounds, and then they also proceed to become, I don't know, uh, a head of a, you know, head edit, lead editor of a newspaper, or, you know, just a member of a fucking think tank, or, 
failing upwards or speaking engagements. Oh my gosh, do you know how how and this ain't even UK people like Obama, like George Bush, they, they all these people. Um, and another lesser-known politicians in the US, they also get banging loads of money just to do speaking engagements. That's what they do after they after they after their work. After they do a you know objectively shit job in some ways, uh, they just they 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 get money just to you know just to talk, and that's just jarring to me. So let's get into this. So this is uh, failing upwards. How incompetence conquered Britain. This is by uh, Patrick Cockburn uh, via the uh, via iNews. Uh, so let's jump right in. I'm always fascinated by people who fail upwards, performing poorly in job after job, yet gaining promotion each time around. A stellar example of failing upwards is Liz Truss, whose ministerial career was blunderstrown long before she became Britain's most disastrous prime minister. This is a great point. Another requested a dick, who, after leading the operation that inadvertently ended with the police shooting dead an innocent Brazilian on the underground, became the disaster-prone head of the Metropolitan Police. Incompetent leaders may crop up at any time, but much more interesting are those whose repeated failures were notorious before they were even given crucial decision-making posts. Uh, was that was that dude who got um, deputy head of the Conservatives just re- like yesterday, Lee Anderson or something like that? Oh, grimy fucker, man. Anyway, discovering how and why they were promoted should tell us a lot about the health of British state and society. Most importantly, it may provide clues as to why the quality of leadership in Britain has nosedived in the past dozen years as people take charge who have a public record of failures in whatever they were trying to do. Trust seeking her political resurrection is a frightening indication of how far political promotion has been detached from actual performance. I want to stop there because it actually does fascinate. I mean, how Liz Truss has just come back just, just after 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 a couple of months, like this woman should have been gone in exile for like at least a year before cropping her fucking neck back up. Have you no shame? Have you no shame of how much damage you caused in what forty four days? So much exponential damage, and she has the audacity to just come back with an essay. I'm back to say the exact same shit, to stick to her fucking guns. She has no shame and has learned absolutely fuck all. Learned nothing. Absolutely jarring. Anyway, continuing on. As International Trade Secretary, she agreed a trade deal with Australia and New Zealand, uh, denounced as a ruinous failure and a disaster for British farmers by a former Tory minister involved in the agreement. As Foreign Secretary, her ignorance of the geography of Ukraine and Russia on the eve of war turned her into a figure of fun in Moscow. As Prime Minister, she had a meeting with President Joe Biden in New York, which led him to tell his aides that she was quote-unquote really dumb, according to a White House source. Ouch. And Joe Biden's coming at you with that. (laughs) Senile Joe, bruv, coming at you saying she's dumb. Goddamn. Uh, Biden had reached uh, this dismissive conclusion after she asked him both to toughen up sanctions on Russia and to bring down the price of energy without her taking on board the obvious point that other sanctions on Russian oil exports inevitably meant higher oil prices. How then did she uh, did the much derided trust briefly occupy Downing Street where her actions were in keeping with her dismissal dismal track record, though with far more calamitous consequences? At one level, she was helped into power by her fanatical tunnel vision and characteristic, a characteristic which is not so different from straight stupidity. 
but it can also attract those who mistake inflexibility for determination in pursuit of a well-thought-out plan. All arrows are seen as pointing in the same direction. If only shilly-shallying critics could be brought uh, brought to understand this. Those who are best at selling snake oil are often those who believe it is it really is a magic potion. An excess of intelligence may be a liability in doing so, but what makes the trust and Boris Johnson potion so lethal is that their version of English nationalism and economic policies suitable for its empowerment originate in the think tanks and mindset of the American right. Trust may now have the cheek to claim that her big mistake was to go, quote, too far and too fast, unquote, a deeper mistake was to imagine that economic prescriptions originating in the US would work in a smaller and weaker country like the UK. This does not quite explain why snake oil salespeople have been doing so well in Britain since 2010. A reason may be that a country like Britain, in a relative decline, is particularly prone to wishing for a golden bullet, which will reverse the negative trend. In the event, the bullet did turn up in the shape of the exit, but perhaps the greatest harm inflicted on the UK by leaving the EU was not economic, but rather the elevation of a leadership cadre poorer in quality than any other in British history. Saner enabled politicians and civil servants were systematically sieved out. Those who espoused uh, the exit faith or became uh, late converse post-referendum to its manifest truths could expect their most glaring inadequacies to be ignored. Many a failing or languishing political career was supercharged and took off towards the pinnacles of power. This is not solely British phenomenon, uh, not a solely, not a solely British phenomenon. Uh, spectacular though its impact has been here in recent years, members of the political class in Washington are famous for manoeuvring themselves into powerful jobs for which they are supremely ill-fitted. Here we go. I used to follow the career of Zalmi uh, Khalil Khalilzad, a U.S. ambassador to Iraq and Afghanistan who never appeared to touch anything in either country which did not fall apart, and whose final achievement was to negotiate the peace agreement with the Taliban that inadvertently tr- fast-tracked their return to power. Some factors always favour the political rise of the least competent. Those who in charge of giving them a job do not want to promote a potential rival who is abler than themselves. Continue this preference for courtiers uh, long enough, and there is nobody to naysay the boss when he wants to invade Kuwait or Ukraine. The case of Cressida Dick, who presided over the Met as a plethora of scandals, uh, destroyed its credibility, has more to do with identity politics. Progressives welcomed the appointment of a gay woman to the head uh, a, to head a macho misogynist organisation, while the Met old guard guessed that she was never going to in- in- introduce radical reform. A seldom no- uh, noted a seldom noticed accelerant for the career advancement of poor performers is that everybody wants rid of them. But the best way of doing so without fuss is to praise them without uh, praise them to the skies, give them a glowing CV and suggest privately that they move on to higher things. I know of a senior academic who was covertly removed from his post for sexually harassing female students. A friend involved in his displacement explained to me that the man had been misbehaving for years had survived for so long because his employers had repeatedly decided that the best way to get rid of him without damaging scandal was to back him strongly for a better paying job as some university unaware of his reputation. Oh, gosh, man. So, like, people just have no ethics. Like, there's just a lack of ethics here. It's just so, oh, so ugly. It's grim. All right. 
put all these uh, reasons together and there is every chance that the wrong person will end up in charge of a country, an army, a commercial company or any other organisation. As a foreign correspondent, I generally avoided uh, interviewing leaders as this seldom produced real news because whoever I was seeing would be cautious about what he told a visiting foreign journalist. And the big boss turned out to uh, know astonishing little about what was happening. I recall that in 1930, my father, Claude Cockburn, then junior correspondent of the Times in New York, interviewed Al Capone in Chicago. He took an immediate dislike to, quote, the jowly young murderer, uh, unquote, and was averse to publicizing his highly unoriginal views about the world. From, from Chicago at that t- at the time of Prohibition to post-exit Britain, the world has been best by uh, leaders who failed upwards. So, yeah. I mean, uh, that's exactly what I just... That's just the main thing I subscribe to whenever I see um, any, you know, cabinet reshuffle or just um, any movement in power. It's always failing up. It's every single time it's failing up. It's honestly worse than nepotism because with nepotism, nepotism is easy to grasp, right? You know, even... Fuck. Even when... (laughs) Even Cockburn made the point of nepotism right there. His father interviewed Al Capone for the New for the for the Times. I assume New York Times, right? That that there you go. There there you go. Nepotism, right? Um, that's easy to grasp, right? But failing up is different. It's not nepotism like that because, as far as I know, these people aren't related, right? But they just have this. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours mentality. They're just, uh, just so ugly, so fucking ugly, and they don't care who sees in some way. They really don't. And what's even worse is when they are noted to be trash, they still get the gas, and that is just, ah, uh, un- unconscionable, bro. It's just, it's just, it's honestly disgraceful to think about. Um, but hey man, what, what else is what else is there? What else is there possibly to say on that front? And ladies and gentlemen, did you honestly think that I would go past the anniversary of the exit? without taking a victory lap in how right I was that we shouldn't have left the EU for the myriad of reasons that I've portrayed in the past three, four years. I've got how long it's been now. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm taking this victory lap. So this is by Adam Biankov uh, via Byline Times. It's called uh, The Exit Has Left the UK in a State of National Decline. I don't want to take happiness in this, guys. I just want better for all of us, okay? That's all I want. That's all I think about. I want better for everybody, which is why I voted to remain, because I knew that you fuckers would idly go by thinking, oh, if I vote leave, get the foreigners out, you know what I mean? Some Or something like that, or some uh, snake oil about, uh, about trade, or about uh, fucking sovereignty, whatever the fuck that meant. I saw it, I saw the bullshit, I saw it, I smelt that fucker, and I was like, this stinks, this fucking stinks, 
No cases being made here. They're just saying shit. Okay? They're just saying shit. And everybody ate that all up. Num, 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 num. Ate it all up. So I'm here to take my fucking victory lap. Call me narcissistic, but guys, I'm honest. This is in good faith. My gloating is in good faith. As was me voting Remain and making the case on this here podcast that if we do this, it will be bad. And I didn't have any forecast, right? I had none of that smart shit with me, but it was just logical. We had so many problems even back then. And now those problems are still here and even worse. NHS. Economy. Chilled child poverty. And all of that and more. Even worse now. Exponentially. Exponentially. But anyway, let's see what Adam Yankov has to say about this. <laughs> As, uh, broad sunlit uplands await us, Jacob Rees-Mogg confidently predicted to MPs shortly before Britain's exit from the EU. Three years on, it's been three years, there you go, and those sunlit uplands have singu- singularly, singularly failed to materialise. Another word I can't quite say properly. In fact, according to the International Monetary Fund's latest forecast, UK is now the only major economy set to shrink this year. Once branded the poor man of Europe, Britain increasingly looks like the poor man of the developed world. The cause of this decline is obvious, with economists pointing to the shortage of European workers as a major contributing factor to Britain's economic gloom. In a speech last week, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt instead is sought to blame the country's woes on what he called the black swan events of the pandemic and Ukraine war. But while these have affected all developed nations, Britain is alone failing to recover from them. According to the IMF, even Russia, hit by massive international sanctions, is set to outperform the UK. When it comes to our nearest global competitors, the self-imposed economic sanctions of the exit appear to outweigh all others. And I will say, ladies and gentlemen, I can have obviously predicted Ukraine, I can have predicted COVID, but it makes my point stronger overall. But anyway, continue. I'm not Nostradamus, okay? It's not Charlie Darmus, okay? It's not Charlie Darmus. I just said, in general, things will be worse. And I was right. It's a very blunt statement to say, but I was still right. That exit is significantly uh, contributing to this economic decline should now be indisputable. According to the government's own Office for Budget Responsibility, uh, break, ooh, nearly said it. the exit is set to shrink the potential size of the UK economy by 4%, with the UK's trading potential set to fall by 15% in the long term. Quote, Very clearly, the exit was an economic own goal, said uh, the IFS, his director Paul Johnson, said at the end of last year. Economically speaking, there has been very bad news indeed, and continues to be bad news, unquote. However, it's not just the economy that has been badly damaged by the exit, but our politics too. For decades, Britain was seen around the world as a relatively stable country that rarely suffered the sort of political ruptures that affected other nations. But in the nearly seven years that have followed the vote to leave the EU, Britain has become a byword for political chaos. In that relatively short period, the UK has had five Prime Ministers, seven chances, and is currently gearing up for its third general election. Meanwhile, the government, which took the decision to hold the EU referendum in the first place, has become paralysed by scandal and allegations of corruption. The British public has noticed a poll commissioned by Byline Supplement last week found that 65% of voters now believe the uh, the Conservative Party is institutionally corrupt, with just 18% disagreeing. But rather than face up to the damage caused to our national standing by the exit, 
Rishi Sunak's government uh, appears to be in the state of permanent denial about it. Exposeman for Sunak today insisted that the UK had seen, quote, significant benefits from the exit, unquote. See, this is what pisses me off. This is what pisses me off. The fucking denial, just denial, 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 is the worst thing. And that's why this whole country's fucking backsliding. If we can't acknowledge issues and just say everything's fine, like nothing is fucking fine, bro. I'd rather than be pessimistic and say everything's shit, but we're going to sort it. You know what I mean? But there's solutions. That'll be exponentially better. But saying, but being in complete denial and saying there's been significant benefits from the exit is fucking infuriating actually pisses me off. Anyway, in his speech last week, the Chancellor accused those who criticised Britain's exit from the EU of committing declinism. What are we talking... I don't even want to read this quote. Declinism about Britain is just wrong, he told an audience in the City of London. Brilliant. (laughs) Amazing, amazing imagery there. Um, He has always been wrong in the past and is wrong today. Unquote. Yeah, in reality, it is not the critics of the exit who are committing declinism, but those who continue to refuse to face up to its real impact. Talk your shit, Adam. Talk your shit. Exactly what I was going to say. Talk your shit. The result of this refusal is that Britain remains in a state of apparent paralysis. Boom. When senior figures within Sunak's administration briefed the press last year that the Prime Minister was considering taking the UK into a closer Swiss-style training agreement with the EU, the news caused an immediate backlash from Conservative MPs. Glorious. Within hours, Downing Street was forced to deny its plans, leaving the UK economy rooted in its continued state of decline. So they'd rather literally be in a... They'd literally just rather be in fucking limbo than actually have any solution. Like, they'd literally rather be in limbo. That's fucking crazy to me. That is not the will of the people in any fashion. You think people want to just be in a constant state of limbo? Are you crazy? Are you absurd? Like, you're doing this just because of you, bro. This is this is it. They're all fucking just individualist little shits that just coalesce to become this one big pile of shit. Ay ay ay! It's, oh, it's fucking amazing, outstanding. All right, senior figures in government and their supporters in the media appear locked in an alternate reality where the real chains holding Britain back are the continued adoption of European regulations and the absence of further tax cuts. Yet the British, uh, yet among the British public, the real cause of decline seems increasingly obvious. While the current government, current government was elected on the pledge to quote unquote get the exit done, unquote, the reality of three years of economic isolation has turned support for remaining outside the EU into a decidedly minority position. According to one major poll this week, there is now just one constituency in the entire country where more voters believe the exit wasn't a mistake, but uh, than believe it was. In every part, of the, every other part of the nation, the settled opinion is that the exit was an error. As a result, 63 of all decided voters now say they would vote to rejoin the EU were another vote held today, according to the latest polling by Omnisys. <sighs> oh, if that happens, I, it, it won't, because Labour's also garbage and are participating in Tory-like politics, or as, as, as to um, elucidate on that, Basically, the Tory party 10 years ago, um, they will not even entertain that either. So, um, don't hold your breath. Were a new vote to be held on held tomorrow, Britain would almost certainly return as a full member of the European Union. 
Again, don't hold your breath. Such a vote is unlikely to happen anytime soon, however. There you go. The Labour Party, the leader of which was elected thanks to his support uh, for a secondary referendum on the exit, is now committed to, quote-unquote, making the exit work. There we go. Thanks, Adam. Once again, spitting bars. What that pledge would mean in reality uh, is as yet unclear. Keir Starmer has pledged significantly to significantly renegotiate the terms of Britain's trade agreement with the EU when it comes up for renewal in 2025. He has, he has also committed to, quote, eliminating most border checks with Europe, as well as negotiating, another quote, a new veteran, veterinary agreement for agri-products and mutual recognition of professional qualifications, unquote. Okay, don't know what that means. Uh, however, any such renegotiation is unlikely to re- fully reverse the harm caused by the exit. To date, Starmer has ruled out the UK error joining the single market or customs union under his government. Excuse me. Meaning the main chains holding the UK economy back are unlikely to be lifted anytime soon. As a result, any Labour government would likely only round the edges of the exit deal, which has so clearly wounded the UK economy. It remains to be seen whether this is a sustainable position, with economic and political reality both pointing towards the need for Britain to fundamentally rethink its relations with the EU. Labour's stated plans to merely tinker around the edges of the UK's current deal is unlikely to prove sufficient. But whatever the party ultimately decides, the damage caused by the exit is now abundantly clear. Far from blowing the clouds away from Britain's economic and political horizon, the exit has left the nation in a state of seemingly permanent gloom. And until our leaders acknowledge that fact, the first steps of our national recovery will never truly begin. Bars. Bars, bars, fucking bars all over the shop. I mean, what else did I say? What else did I say? I, I, you know, I said it, and then Adam said it, and then Adam said something, and I was like, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was about to say that. Like minds, bruv. Like fucking minds. Like, if they don't even acknowledge that they fucked up, and this is this is what happened. I was literally watching a video um, about the Vietnam War and why the US just kept going um, after decades of you know of just being there, right? Um, Literally, the first the first point of order in terms of you know just fully going into war with Vietnam was to to save embarrassment, was to save face, because if they pulled out at that point, um, they would just be like, uh, you know, a laughing stock because little old Vietnam pushed back the biggest country in the world in a lot of ways at that time, and it's exactly the same thing. People, politicians, they do this out of lack of embarrassment. Like they're not embarrassed by any of this, but they are an embarrassment. They are, they are unfortunately our representatives for this country in a lot of ways, and they're so fucking embarrassing. They don't even notice it, and they refuse to deny and refuse to even acknowledge that they fucked up. The public's willing to acknowledge that they fucked up, and I'm so happy you guys are coming around on it. So happy, so happy. Welcome to the club. Took a while, but we got there. And now we're going to have to deal with either another Tory government or another or, or a new Labour government where they won't even contend the fact that none of us want this anymore. Won't even acknowledge it. So we're just going to be st- stuck in a permanent limbo for the rest of the time because they always want to save face I'm above everything. Above being above being correct in the long term, above being uh, on the right side of history, regardless of the timing, they'd just rather be wrong. 
and uh, just stick with it for whatever fucking reason. So to finish off, um, we're going to do something that I wasn't even aware of. Um, I saw this and I was like, huh, interesting, intriguing. Um, so I wanted to give this a read because I thought, you know, the, 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 you know, the other three topics were, you know, uh, one, well, one was just purely a victory lap for me, but the other two was, you know, just um, adding on to uh, the talking points I've been talking about for the past uh, few weeks. Um, and uh, yeah, so... I just wanted to read this as kind of like a palate cleanser to finish off um, and just something that I found interesting because I was not aware of it and uh, <laughs> and I'll like, you know, forever keep an arm's length to shit like this because whenever I see the word TikTok, eh, 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 arm's length, thank you very much, keep that away from me. Um, so this is by Barry Pierce, uh, it's called, uh, it's by GQ, um, probably the first time I've covered a GQ story here. Um, it's called in the sh- well, it's an opinion, but you know, uh, in the shallow world of book talk, being a reader is more important than actually reading. And obviously, this you know kind of tangentially can uh, uh, connects to the um, uh, to the not reading uh, segment I did last week. So there's a connection to last week in some ways. I'm not actively trying to connect my episodes here. Um, it's just I keep finding shit that I want to talk about, and uh, you know. It is what it is. It just happened to connect. Um, but regardless, this is interesting. So let's jump right in. It's, it's nice and short. I did my best to stay away from book talk for as long as I could. But in my defence, I was stranded in the rural Irish tundra for Christmas. And I'd already worked through the latest series of Emily in Paris. God, this dude sounds horrible. <laughs> it's, it's like, I, rural Irish tundra watching Emily in Paris. What are you doing, bro? What, what's going on there? Anyway, it's probably visiting for Christmas. Who knows? Of course, I'd heard uh, all about it, all about how it has allegedly changed the books industry forever, really, and ha- and made some authors millionaires practically overnight. But I didn't need another addiction in my life. I already have Coca-Cola and Byredo candles. Byredo candles? Never heard of it. Uh, yet there I was, scrolling and scrolling. Book talk had got me. It became my latest obsession, in much the same way. Uh, that one might become obsessed with sticking your tongue in plug sockets. Great imagery. But there was just something about watching the same 20 books being flaunted again and again, people openly confessing to owning hundreds of unread books, the flagrant abuse of sticky tabs in novels that absolutely do not require that much citation. Bookshelves are so perfect that it rouse suspicion. People calling themselves, quote-unquote, certified bookworms, but, like, entirely earnestly... Uh, frequent references to people's yearly reading goals, something called new adult. I'm learning today. There's a lot of terms here. I'm learning <laughs> new adult. The fuck is that? It was like entering a parallel universe where reading wasn't just something that someone did for fun. It was a lifestyle, an aesthetic. People were readers like Lorraine Kelly is Lorraine Kelly. Uh, but one thing just wouldn't leave my head as I scrolled endlessly through this cursed landscape. I think I'm responsible for this. Way back in the 2010s, there used to be a community of book lovers on YouTube. The collective, known as BookTube, was very much a precursor to today's book talk. Some of the pillars of book talk, books, halls, book halls, books, halls, on halls, challenges, reading wrap-ups. 
uh, for example, were pioneered on BookTube, and for a while at least, it was a cosy and wholesome corner of the internet. I used to be a BookTuber, uh, one of the bigger ones actually. It's kind of the reason why I was able to have some legitimacy when I transitioned into writing about books as a career. I stopped making BookTube videos because the community had become overrun by commercialism. Near the end of the 2010s, many of the major booktubers had essentially become pawns in the hands of publishing houses. They'd receive boxes upon boxes of books that they then haul, basically just show off, and then you'd never see those books mentioned again. The act of reading became replaced by the act of being a quote-unquote reader. Actual reviews became far, few and far between, and many of the smaller genuine readers on the, on the platform jumped ship. It feels like BookTok has got to the same place, only much faster. At the end of 2022, the best-selling author, Stephanie Danler of uh, Sweet, Bitter and Stray, Again, not into that. Uh, not. I. I am so out of book world. It's crazy. Like I. I am. I've. I've. Book world is so vast. I feel like I haven't even scratched. Like not even read, but just I'm aware of. Like less than less than a percentage. Actually, three decimal places. Like zero zero one of percent of just all authors being aware of i this book like book world is so fucking vast and i uh, it scares me it scares me how big it is anyway like i don't even know best-selling author stephanie danler best-selling author every there's so many best-selling authors you know what i mean and i just i know none of them anyway wrote about trying to traverse book talk as an author her experience was somewhat fraught she wrote that tiktok is quote not a social media app but an entertainment app quote gas, gas, like that. On it, you can't just show a book by Clarice Lispector. This, again, another name. I don't know. The successful accounts performed being a woman who reads Clarice Lispector, unquote. Dana also goes on to make the claim that, quote, being visible on these apps is antithetical to the act of writing, unquote. I find it difficult to disagree with Dan the summation of BookTok. There is an uncanny falseness behind it all, a showing nothingness that only approximates bibliophilia, who doesn't want to be seen as literary? Uh, being perceived as having a lo- uh, read a lot of books warrants a fair share of cultural capital. If you can fake it, then why not? When I was in a bookshop recently, I noticed it had a whole bay dedicated to the- these book talk books. Ugh, what dystopian way of doing things. Uh, trying to explain what this meant to the person I was with, I told them that it was basically a subgenre of easily bingeable novels that all sort of have the same cover. They paused for a second and told me that I had I had basically just described what Mills and Boone books are. Part of me, for the first time in my life, felt like defending Mills and Boone. In a recent Guardian opinion piece, Rhiannon Lucy Coslett wrote about the cult of book ownership. Though she doesn't make reference to book talk in the piece, a lot of the points she makes about the quote-unquote cult are easily applicable to the community. Uh, Quote, some people treat books like totemic magical objects, unquote. Costlet writes, going on to specify that these people sh- follow the belief system of, quote, having a lot of books and boasting about it, treating having a lot of books as a standard for your personality, or believing that simply owning a lot of books makes one know things, unquote. The piece re- received a fairly hostile reaction, mostly from people who perfectly fit the above description, but I found it to be one of the uh, one of the most erudite evocations, evoca- 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 I think as I say, of book talkers I've ever read. Maybe I should have read that. Oh, nice. Um, I'm joking. To prove Costa's point, have a look at the TikTok in which someone has wrapped every unread book they own 
over 300 in brown paper. Or the dude who says that one of his tips for learning to read more is to romanticise reading by finding a cute outfit to read in. What? (laughs) Or the person who has made miniature versions of every book they read in 2022 and displays them in a frame. Or the person who has retabbed their books because the tabs stick out too much and they want the colour match want the colour match the tabs of the book's covers. Oh, fucking hell. With all of this effort being put into being seen as a reader, one wonders how any of them have the time to read. And I feel like this is good. I, I feel like I can find a... There's two things that I'll finish on, right? And uh, one's a personal anecdote. Well, not an anecdote, but just a personal link that I can make towards this because I can't relate to any of this shit. You know, I have... I do have books. I have, um, you know, I have half a shelf of books. Um, Some are, you know, I've got a photography book. Um, I've got, I'm trying to look and talk at the same time. Uh, You know, just a couple of biography, all biographies. Um, And yeah, you know, just a couple of novels and uh, memoirs and, you know, just a nice variety. I've got a nice variety of books. But literally it's one, two, maybe just over 10, right? I don't have that many books. Um, I don't have that many. And, um, you know, my mum reads voraciously, actually. She, she reads, you know, probably, probably, I don't know, three books a week. <laughs> I mean, probably, I don't know. Um, but she's always reading. She always has been a reader. Um, I've just never been that kind of person. You know, I read articles, I listen to audiobooks, um, and that's kind of the furthest I get to, you know, I'm currently, read the book I'm currently reading is, uh, Bomb the Suburbs. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, it's a shortish book in the grand scheme of things, it's a shortish book, but, you know, I've only gotten through about two chapters, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking it slow, and I always take it slow, because, again, I just have other shit to do, right? But the two things I wanted to reference is this. One, personally, is that this is how I feel when it comes to, uh, writers on, you know, TikTok or Twitter, or just writer, screenwriting personalities, all of that shit. Um, I find them all grifters in some fashion. Um, you are making all these videos about writing and, you know, you know, some of them have, you know, valuable content in there. Um, one of my, one of the books that helped me out a lot with my writing is, uh, Kay and Wyland's, uh, book on character arcs. Um, that really, and funny enough, I got that on audiobook and it was really good. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've taken it to gospel and I really I really focus on character arcs when I make my stories, uh, when I make my scripts, um, which I didn't do previously. Um, so, you know, there are some that are worthy of being read. Um, if you're a beginner, you know, there's a couple of books that will help you along, but you don't have to take them as gospel, right? And that's the thing. But a lot of, but the rest of them, grift, grift. That's all it is. They're just saying shit that's been said before, grift, right? And, and again, are you a screenwriter if you're not screenwriting? You're making all these videos. How are you having time to screenwrite? You know what I mean? That's, that's, so that's why I connect with, to the book talkers, right? You're making all these TikToks. You're talking about books. You're unboxing books, right? You're doing that. You're going to events and stuff like that. When are you reading? Are you actually reading? Um, and the second uh, reference, and it's not even a reference, it's just, um, just someone I was thinking about, um, when I was reading it, I was thinking of, um, I had a uni friend, uh, shout out to Vicky, I don't know if she probably doesn't listen, but <laughs> shout out to Vicky, and um, she 
was a voracious reader. Um, she, you know, she's a she's she's definitely a bookworm. Um, she's into I think like YA, you know, shit like fiction, um, that kind of stuff, right? And uh, you know, I, can't, I sometimes uh, see her like uh, you know drop in just like a a dump of uh, of just you know quick star quick five star reviews of like books she's read in a month or whatever, and you know she reads a fucking a ton of books, so, so you know respect to her. Um, you know, at least she, you know, is reading them, right, and not just copying them. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, because I do, I I do that for some things, right? I I've caught I cop books, um, and don't read them. Um, you know, I'm that I'm that kind of guy, right? I have um, a bunch of scripts in my in my laptop and on my phone, and I haven't read them yet, right? So you know, I just do that, and a lot of people probably do that. Um. But, you know, she generally does it. And uh, I'll be fascinated to know what someone like her would think of something like BookTok. Because, you know, while that while the community thing can be very fun for, for book readers, and I'm sure, you know, book clubs are a thing, right? Always, always a book, there's always a book club everywhere. Everyone has a book club. Um, you know, I get it. I get the community aspect of it. But I feel like but the problem with TikTok and social media in general is that everything is content. I hate that word. I despise that word. But everything is content. Everyone's making... Every every tweet everyone makes, including me, every tweet everyone makes, every IG post, every story post, none of it is just vibes. It can't be. It's never just vibes. You're creating a portfolio for yourself. You're creating a image for yourself, right? Every time. That's how, that's how it's seen, Okay subconsciously that's how everyone sees everybody ig honeys they looking fine are they doing it because they just look fine is it vanity is it you know is it just getting money is it uh you know are they getting paid to take these photos i don't know right but there's but there's a market there's a stereotype that everybody's going to have when it comes to a certain uh type of person on social media and book talkers for me sounds like just content creation for a certain type of people a very niche type of person i.e. book readers uh, and bookworms and these people aren't book these people can't be book readers because they're just they got so many books they can't possibly read them are they dropping reviews on it probably not um, you know, I've intermittently done, you know, um, done like little tweet threads of just audiobooks I've listened to. And because I don't get through a lot of them, I have a lot. And that's another thing, actually. I have a lot of audiobooks I haven't spun yet. Um, actually, let me look up now. I'll see how, I'll give you how many titles I haven't started, but I own. Right. Um, I recently downloaded a new one called uh, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost by Joan Morgan. I'm going to spin that someday. But I have not started. I have 38 but audiobooks I haven't started yet um and uh yeah <laughs> and uh, uh one that I've I'm currently going through is uh the Knox which is an audible original so it's not a book but you know what I mean um but yeah so you know I'm I'm fi- I'm fine with having these things cuz I know I'm going to get to them at some point I will get to them at some point um I'm confident in that um but yeah man it's just <laughs> for people that just people that just open Book halls? You, you ain't reading that shit. Uh, come on, man. And and publishing houses are powerful. Trust me on that, okay? So, uh, yeah, anyway. I've rambled on. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Finish there from the Fifth End Podcast Network. I'm a child saying it's been most good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for the BC's track. You can find both their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Nappy Hire, friend of Five Year Nappy Hire, for the ability to use Charismatic for the interlude. You can also find this link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always, always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.